0: Welcome to Companies That Care. I'm your host, Marie Galileo Martin, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. Do you struggle to put words to the screen? Is writing the very last thing you want to do in your day? My mission is to make communications painless for my clients. I can turn a piece of lackluster, jargon-filled, or technical prose into clear dynamic narrative. I help my clients discover how to tell their stories or solve their communications challenges. Look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com. I'd love to give you a free 30-minute consult. I alternate this Companies That Care podcast with my other podcast, Finding Fertile Ground, which is about people finding their own fertile ground through their stories of grit and resilience. On both of my podcasts, I strive to highlight voices from historically excluded populations People who don't always get a platform. You can find information about both podcasts on my website and social media. Today I'm interviewing Heather R. Younger. Heather is a best-selling author, international speaker, consultant, professor, podcaster, and facilitator. Born to a white Jewish mom and a black dad, Heather and her dad were completely excluded from her mom's family thanks to racism. She grew up feeling like an outsider, which has made her especially determined to create caring environments wherever she goes. She's earned a reputation as the employee whisperer, founding a company called called Employee Fanatics. She inspires others by teaching the kind of caring leadership that drives real business results. Let's meet Heather and hear about how to create Companies That Care. Hello, Heather. Thank you so much for joining me on the Companies That Care podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: It's wonderful to talk to you. I listened to your great TED Talk, which was a wonderful introduction to your background, and you talked about the adversity in your life.
1: Can you share just a little bit about your story with our listeners? So my mom is white and Jewish. My dad is black and Christian and I'm the only child. And when my mom and dad were married, interestingly enough, my dad would have a friend of his who was white come to my mom's house to take her out on a date. And that gentleman would take her to my dad. They dated, they had me and my mom's parents were not at all happy about this union. They wanted her to, you know, marry a nice Jewish boy or the dark Jewish family. And they didn't, she didn't. Then I was born and I was a constant reminder to them of basically the mistake that was made in their mind. And I wasn't invited to family gatherings, bar mitzvahs, weddings. I was just explicitly excluded. I would go to occasionally to my grandmother's house. My father was never invited there. You know, spending a lifetime as an outsider feeling like that, you know, there were no pictures of me hanging on my grandfather's wall. And it was a very close knit family, but I was not included. So that background made me be the person who, well, number one, I felt like I wasn't worthy for many years, had a complex related to this. Up into my 30s, I didn't even get to go to a large family gathering until I was 36 years old, which, by the way, was my oh. grandmother's funeral. It was an interesting way to come up, and there were other kind of things happening in the background as well that that really created this sense in me. I don't know where the drive came from. I, I think I you know I think in every in in life with adversity, we can all choose different paths, and you could, I could have chosen to go be the person who turned out to be kind of curmudgeon and blaming the world and not being kind and, and you know, concerning kindness for other people. And I chose not to. I chose to be the person who made other people feel included and engulfed with love and care. And I said, I'm a big hugger. I'd like to bring people into the fold who are ones who look like they're, they're on the outside. So I chose that different path. I chose a path of more of uplifting and encouragement and support. And uh, that's just who I am now.
0: That must have felt so lonely when you were a child.
1: It was. It was. I Luckily, I had really good friends. One thing I found as an only child, I had this really It was bad, actually a bad way. I'd have like a really good friend and I'd be like super attached to them and I'd get super jealous if they had any other friends. This is part of the only child thing too. Then I would like move on in my life, like something like, let's say I'd go from elementary school, I'd go to high school and they were in a different high school. So then I'd go and I'd have another best friend and I had a really good best friend in high school and then she didn't go on to college. And then I did. and And then I went on to law school. So I was really super focused and I just let that go. I, I didn't have, was not a very good friend for many, many years. I just had this, I don't know what it was, but, and it's, it wasn't until literally probably late thirties that I got better at it. And probably forties is when I got really good at it. I'll be 50 this year. So mm-hmm. dating myself, but oh my gosh. So yeah. So I think that, you know, it was lonely, but I think I had so much internal drive and I just had a desire not to be what many of the adults were in my life. And, you know, some of the other things that revealed themselves. So Yeah.
0: Oh, let's think about your career, going back into the beginning of your career. Can you tell our listeners how you got here? What led you down this particular career path?
1: Well, I mean, part of it is that backstory, the backstory of feeling like I was an underdog, you know, as if I wasn't being listened to, wasn't respected or important. That was kind of the foundation of what had a drive in me to want to make sure others felt the same. And then uh, several years ago, I was working in an organization and there was a merger of five companies that were coming together. I was leading customer experience at the time and I could sense a major shift in the culture the people just like all this mistrust was everywhere. People were joining the company with titles totally different than the title. They were very similar, sorry, than the titles of the people who already were there and they were hiring other people with the same titles. In fact, so much so that I even lost my position, not my job, I I got moved, but I lost my position uh, I didn't even know about it. Until I looked on this internal Facebook group. It was like an internal the internal Facebook. I can't remember what the app is called. But I went on there and I saw that People were congratulating one particular person for this particular role. And I was like, huh, that's my role. Oh my and then I had to go back and talk to the leader and say, uh, hello, like the way you do this is not to let the person who <laughs> doesn't have that job anymore. Find out on an internal post. Oh my gosh, um, that's awful! It was awful. So, so that was the kind of the cult. That kind of those things were happening. People were fearful, and I and people would come to me. They always have come to me to to be like this voice of like who What's happening with my leaders? What's happening with the you know the team? And so I went to the head of HR and I said, "Listen, you've got to do something. I mean, our trust is downhill. And culture's going bad, and I could feel myself slipping into it too." And she said, "You know what? I think you're right. We should go do something about that." And I'm like. I should go do something about that. Like, I'm, I'm coming to you, head of HR, and I am leading customer experience. And But then I thought, well, it made sense because at that point, I had already proven myself as kind of that culture bearer, the one who's always uplifting people, whether they are my team or not, and, you know, just trying to encourage other people um, for just whatever they did. And so I did that. I, des- I decided to create an employee engagement council, brought people from all the different companies that were in the Denver office, but they were, they were stationed or sitting all in, this, in um, that office. And I'd bring all those companies together and we would think about how we could break down barriers, how we could break down silos, how we can get people to know each other. We did sense a shift because we did a lot of fun things to try to connect people. And we sent a shift and, and things started to go better on the culture side in that regard with the people, the people relationships. But then the merger didn't go so well. Through it all, though, is I realized that there needed to be a bridge between those who move the business forward day to day and those who are like kind of traditionally in the ivory tower and one who could bring it to them in a way that would be synthesized, that would speak their language, who just knew that. And that was me. and so I decided to create, actually not right away, not right away did I create it. I, through this whole layoff process, I started to write a lot on LinkedIn. My very first, second or third article were about how to lay people off of dignity because these people were the model for how to do it, at least at the very end of it. People started to come out and reach out to me and ask me like, boy, could you come help our organization with this and that and this and that? And finally, I'm like, I better create a company. (laughs) So I created the company I have now, which was, I think when I created it in 2015 and I was full time with it in 2017, because even after that happened and I created the company, I ended up working at another position, first leading customer experience. And then they moved me into organizational development, leading that and then there were reorgs there and I still was there but I I was my business my my side hustle had gotten so crazy busy successful that I needed to just leave I was going to be in a straight jack I mean I was really going out of my mind having to do the full time job traveling wow. with my business having my four kids wow so I did that I made a decision to just take the leap that was October of 2017 so this year will be 4 years and uh, I haven't looked back since I'm going to be honest I mean the only time that scared me was right at the beginning of the pandemic like those first 2 months I was like, oh my gosh, like a lot of my business halted. But my I wrote my next book. I wrote this book called The Art of Caring Leadership. That's like the story. That There it is. This is my second book. Actually, I, I think I forgot to mention. I have a first book, The Seven Intuitive Laws of Employee Loyalty. And that took place while I was doing a side hustle and working full time.
0: Oh my that. gosh. How do you how did you do it all?
1: Like I just, I did tell you that I was going nuts. I was, I was going <laughs> a little bit, and I was. And I, I, when I tell I'm like, I am not smiling when I'm telling you that. It was a oh, bad
0: time. You must not have been sleeping a whole lot.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I would just, I would be writing like late at night and uh-huh. uh, it, was, it was, I did a lot of the writing while I was, I was unemployed for 13 months. I started the business, had some consulting things, was writing, but it still wasn't in a place where I was comfortable enough to say, I can do this full-time right at that moment. But once I got to the point where the side hustles revenue, you know, brought in as much as my day job, I'm like, this, this makes no sense. I'm uh-huh. going to give it up. I have to do it. So yeah, oh my that's it. that was a long way of doing it, but.
0: <laughs> wow. When you got laid off, was that the merger? Job or is that another job? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Got I've it. I've only been laid
1: off once, and that was it.
0: Yep. Yeah. Right. Wow. So you have been described as the employee whisperer. Can you explain?
1: Yeah, I mean, employee whisper means if you think about it, many, many years ago, and I'm, I could be dating again myself, I don't know, but there was a movie called The Horse Whisperer. Basically, the, this ability to sense, to hear deeply, to sense, even when when they say it or when they don't say it, the sentiment, the desires and needs and wants of employees. And I have read personally over 25,000 employee engagement survey comments or DEI survey comments. I've sat in and facilitated over 100 employee focus groups. The work I do, I do listening sessions and things like that with employees on the DEI space. I do listening sessions on on the engagement space. And so I spend so much time either talking to leaders about their people or talking to the people themselves about what the leaders need to do to change their experience. So that's where the name
0: wow. So what has your experience been like as a biracial woman in the workplace? That's a big
1: question, I know. It is, yeah. <laughs> because of my background, and I think I already told you my frame of how I see things. I don't like victimhood. I can't say that like things that didn't go well for me. I can't say I would attribute them to my womanhood or my, you know, the, the color of my skin. I mean, I'm not naive either, mm-hmm. but I don't recall like really, really blatant or even something that was super obvious. But were there times where decisions were made to go one way or another, or were there, t- I, I, there was one promotion thing that happened where I, Actually, it submitted a full business case. I was at an organization. I submitted a full business case to be promoted to a particular role, and they were like, nah, 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 nah. <laughs> "I ended up leaving that position at some point, going to work for the company before that, the other company that actually ended up do, ended in a layoff." But after I left, after I was at the other job, I left the other place. I was at the other job. Then, like that next year later, they hired a white guy. Oh right, <laughs> the role that I had a whole business case up for doing. And so that could have been something, but again, I didn't, when, when that happened, I did not go, Oh, it's because I'm a, a no, I didn't even think of it at all. I just thought, you know what? They're such idiots.
0: (laughs) Yes. Right. Well, sometimes things are so subtle that you don't, you don't really notice them right away. Yeah. So,
1: I mean, unless I just, I let so many things roll up my shoulder again, when you have like your, when you're born into a family who doesn't accept you, when you have your entire, Mm. your family itself is racist. Like, yeah. And it almost like anything outside of that is kind of relevant. That's interesting. So, <laughs> unless like, it's like blatant bad, yeah, bad stuff.
0: like you haven't had to deal with like microaggressions in the workplace, I've had very some, much. I've had, I've
1: yeah. had some um, but it's it, it wasn't the kind that like leaves me going, Oh, and, oh that's like,
0: good. You're really lucky. Like,
1: again, I don't, I really don't know how to explain it. I've had it, it hasn't been huge, it's been subtle over my life, and because there's really not much that can compare to your own blood. Not accepting you, right? Right. And it, then it, it would just roll off my shoulders. What I'm wow. saying, my level of resilience was built up at a really young age.
0: Wow, that's a really interesting perspective. So you don't feel like you've ever had to code switch when you're in the workplace. You could just be yourself all the time as much as possible, or?
1: Well, I mean, I wouldn't say that. Part oh, right. Right. I think I am mostly me all the time, but you're right. There's mm-hmm. code switching that happens. If I'm with other people, i with other people of color. We are, we definitely are code switching around people who are not people of color. That's for mm-hmm. sure.
0: Mm-hmm. You're probably used to that in your daily life maybe already.
1: I'm, 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 I mean, at the same time, you have to remember my my frame. I am raised by a white woman and predominantly right, my dad right. there up until I was 19. But and even him, the majority of people we hung out with were, were, were white guys. So I mean, in the end, it's kind of like the, I didn't have some huge culture. Now, my dad's side of the family, of course, they were African-American and I was with them quite a bit. But that was only up until I was about nine years old. Most of my other years after that were with my mom a lot and just like other neighbors and friends and things. And I was almost always the only one Like I went to law school and I wasn't the only one there. There were probably about 20 of us in the law school. There were a couple of microaggressions that happened there that I won't ever forget. But did it stop me? Never. And never did, never will.
0: So let's talk about employee fanatics. How are you a company that cares? And what's your company mission?
1: Well, our, really, our company mission is to help organizations create cultures of listening. Listening really is at the foundation of, I feel like, almost all of our world issues. Like, yes. almost all, when, you relate, when you think You're about right. things related to race relations, all of, it's like, did are we listening? Listening uh, um, implies the ability to clear our minds, remove our filters, remove our lenses, to stand in the shoes of the other person, empathize with them, be allies, or be compassionate with them, and, and take action on their behalf. Listening is more than what we think it is. It's a process and it leaves people feeling good things when it's been done to them. When someone has listened to someone else, they feel heard, they feel valued, they feel respected, they feel important. The opposite of how I felt to my own family, right? And that's why it is so critical for me to be like, how do we create these environments? How do we create environments where people feel cared for, where they feel heard, they feel valued, they feel important? How do we do that? And so it's going down and showing them in practice what that looks like. And we use the voices of other people and true listening strategy to actually give them what they need.
0: Yeah. So you have published two books now, one that just came out in April that you mentioned. Can you just give an overview of each of your books to our listeners?
1: Yes. So the one that just came out in April is The Art of Caring Leadership and that book really more specifically defines what care looks like, because care is really this nebulous concept. It has been up to this point where people say, oh, I, oh this person cares for me. Oh, they didn't really care for me that much. But what exactly does that mean? And so what I've done is I've compilated between all of the surveys I've you know, obviously read, all the comments I've read, all the I interviewed 180 leaders, and there's about 80, a little over 80 inside the book, their voices come in there. And so I just corralled all that to create nine behaviors that represent caring leadership. And the behaviors are represented in there with stories that align with that, that really bring the point home. And it's so it's like a guidebook for those who want to show that they are caring leaders to their people. The first book I wrote, The Seven Intuitive Laws of Employee Loyalty, interestingly enough, it kind of raises up if you think of the art of caring leadership as like the 10,000 foot level, the seven intuitive laws is at the like 25,000 foot level. And that's because the first chapter of that first book is on giving them good supportive managers. And the second book I wrote is on the art of caring leadership. So it's all about like, what does good supportive managers look like? And so now I've created a book that really kind of defines that first chapter. But the other one had the seven laws and it was much broader organizationally about what you do. And then this one brings it right down to the leadership level. So they're both good for what they're good for. And this won't be my last book. I think I'm already like before the, in the years up, I'll probably start writing the next one as well. And I'll be focusing on listening, just fully listening and, uh, in the process of listening.
0: So important. So since we're talking about leaders, do you have a particular leader in your career that stands out for you as the epitome of leaders or like your role mm-hmm. model for leadership?
1: Yeah. You know, I think it's interesting. Here's what I would say about caring leadership. None of all of us are on a journey and none of us are perfect at it. I write about it. I talk about it. I research it. I like live and sleep it. And I am not perfect at this. (laughs) Right. There's at least 20% error rate on me. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I just want to make sure that we say that there are folks that I look at, like when I tell, I'll tell you some, you know, I'll tell you a story and that story and that instance and that interaction and that choice by that leader is an example to emulate. But would we emulate every single thing that leader did every single day? No, because we yes, aren't. All. Absolutely. Um, but there's one leader that when we talk, go back to that, that uh, layoff that happened at the end of the layoff, during that process where they were about to, you know, do the layoff with everybody. There was a lot of people that were like, I told them, I said, listen, I told her, this one per- particular person, her name is Heather as well. I told her, I said, you probably don't know this, but my husband quit his job two weeks before oh. and he insured our entire family. Oh my gosh. He, like what? I didn't know that. She goes, Let me go back to the drummer. Let's see what I can do. A few days later, she comes back and she goes, We've decided we're going to insure your entire family on our Cobra for for three months. And you know, Cobra is very expensive. It is, yes. That was just like a a really big indicator for me because, you know, that that right there was a sign of caring leadership, right? She didn't Mm -hmm. just like empathize with me and say, Oh, woe is you. She empathized and she expressed compassion by, going back, researching, and taking action on, on the behalf of my family. I'll never forget her. And in a funny twist, she ended up endorsing my first book, and she's actually one of the stories highlighted in the second book.
0: Yeah, one of those lessons I always have believed, which is you never burn your bridges. Uh, yeah, <laughs> all right. I'm really proud of all of the relationships that I've, you know, back when I was in the corporate world, people would leave a position and then my, all of my colleagues would get really ticked off at that person because they left the company. Mm-hmm. Like, that is just not worth our time. It's stupid.
1: Isn't <laughs> it it? Is, it is. Like, hello. <laughs> I that
0: know. does not make any sense. It, For me, the example that I have that I always share is that when my oldest son was born, he was born at 24 weeks and was in the NICU for four months. So my first exposure to motherhood, I was thrown into crisis. And my boss at the time, he was a finance guy. So he was our regional business manager. And I, as a publications manager, was part of his management team. And he was a great boss for many ways, but during that period of crisis, he was incredible. I mean, he was a bachelor. He did not have any children, but he was so great at saying to me, like, don't worry about your job. You just need to do what you do. And I've always been so grateful for that, that he didn't have a personal experience of fatherhood, but he did all the right things.
1: Mm, and that's, I think that's the key. I mean, you, you're right. You try to do all the right things. I think that, yes. that is what you, if you want to be known as a caring leader, you have to try to do all the right things. And when you don't do it well, you ask for forgiveness. Yes.
0: <laughs> yes. So right? he was, of course, far from perfect, <laughs> but, exactly. but but he did many really great things. And you know, because I was quite young, I was 30 or 31 when I took on this major management role. And He really believed in me and he really mentored me. One of the first things I had to do as a new manager of a multi-office publications group was I had to lay off three graphic designers in an office that had not embraced me as a manager. They wanted their person as the manager and I had to come in and lay these people off. And so he helped me through that. He did most of the layoffs. I was there. So that kind of set me up for, you know, how do you try to lay people off on a in a compassionate way, which is really awful, really hard to do.
1: Yeah, that's really hard. Yes.
0: Yeah, exactly. So in your TED Talk, you talk about how you reframed yourself as not a victim. You referred to that a little bit earlier in our conversations. You said a setback is the setup for a comeback. I liked that phrase. Can you explain a little bit about what you mean by
1: that? Well, I just mean like every, if, if people were to say, you know, what's like part of your big success story or like you're part of your big success calculation or what was the formula to get you here? And I would say that my adversity is what got me here. And my adversity is, what is, is what's what's going to get me to go where I'm going to go. And that's because and I told you about that kind of the voices in the head thing. The voice in the head is like you're not good enough. The voice in the head is that you don't belong. Or those kinds of little voices in the head, that they kind of chirp at you here and there, here and there. It is the thing that actually continues to propel me forward. It doesn't stop me it doesn't get in my way. It actually makes me think more creatively. It helps me be able to kind of leap over barriers because I refuse to be the thing that's in my head. I refuse to be not worthy. I refuse to be that right. And then at the same time, outwardly, I refuse to allow others to feel that way in my presence. It's a wow. gift I was given. I was, It was a gift I was given. It was a gift I'm giving to others now yeah. every day. That's your superpower. You know? Yep. <laughs> yes. Yes. Sure is. So
0: many companies have taken steps to invest in DEI, especially after the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others killed at the hands of police. And I recently read that businesses have donated less than 1% of the money they promised to spend on racial justice and DEI, and less than one-third of them have examined racial pay disparity or set goals to change employee demographics. What are you seeing in the corporate world in this area, and what do you believe are the most important steps for companies to build successful DEI programs?
1: So the organizations that come to me want to do something better. So they, they have a self-awareness. They have an awareness in their like, organizational awareness that something is broken or they're getting very close to it or that they want to get better, even if it's not broken. And so when they come to me, they're already at that place. So what I see in the work I do is that there is an intent to act to some degree. Now, I don't think many of them are prepared to act in the ways they really need to. So it's—I mean, culturally, it's like it's like a whole level of mindset at the top. And as we know, most top—you know—most of the people at the top are the ones who are who we might think of as privileged, or ones that you think that already have had you know a certain type of life life experiences that many have not, and they've had different opportunities. And so, to a certain extent, they have to give away a little bit of that, and they're going to fight against it even when they think they aren't. They're going to fight against it. So that—that's that is going to be a really tough hill to climb. I would say this, like diversity is amazing. Diversity of thought, diversity of background, it's amazing. But what I am seeing, because again, I'm just knee deep in this work, I got to tell you. And I would just say that don't bring in the numbers, the numbers say, let's not go back into the quota system. This is not what it's about. When we bring people in, we need to bring make sure that if we're bringing in the diverse people, that we're prepared to, to deliver a great experience to them so that they stay with you. Don't bring them in for the numbers, check of the box, say we did it. Then they get there. They have no mentorship. They have no support system. They have nowhere to go. They haven't, you know, they're not being elevated. They're given work that's subpar to their skill set. Don't do it. So I would say make sure that before you're focusing on the numbers, focus on on the process, focus on the structure, focus on the systems that are inside your organization. That would be making sure payrolls align, as you talked about, making sure there's a support system, some kind of mentorship system for them making sure that there's equity at, at all levels of your organization. And same thing with inclusion. So I would say kind of focus on the the E, I, B stuff before you get to the D stuff, because mm. if you try to bring them in to check the box, they're going to leave right out the back door right. and you really have accomplished nothing.
0: That's a good way to look at it. Focus on the E and I before you focus on the D
1: I like that. It's true. Because, I mean, I mean, obviously, if you have zero there, then you can't do any experience. But, you know, here's the thing, too, is that we need to look at employee experience holistically. It's not just about the diverse employees. So we, we need to look at the entire employee journey, which would include diverse employees coming in. But that would be the entire employee journey. And if that employee journey right now is bumpy for even those who aren't from the marginalized groups, mm-hmm. I bet your bottom daughter it's going to be like twice as bumpy for those who come in from our marginalized groups. Right. So fix what you got now. And we can talk about that, right? That's what we do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then we can insert some of those other layers of things. But it's not a one and done, and it's not an overnight. With any of this culture work, it takes time. It's multi-year cycle, three to five years, when you really start to see some big upticks. You can have some small wins along the way, some little changes you can make so that people can feel successful right off the bat. But in the end, it's a long-term journey. Yes.
0: What advice do you have for women who are just starting out in the workplace? I think back often to what you know what I was like when I started out. What I wish I'd known, <laughs> you know. What do you wish you'd wow. known back then?
1: Well, I'd never say never. That's one thing I learned about myself. I learned not to do. I did that a lot when I was there, and boy, I have eaten a lot of crow after that. <laughs> <laughs> right, um, really have because I re- I just yeah. So I learned that part. I would say that, you know, I think no matter what, you have to have a belief in yourself and find that passionate thing that that gets you up in the morning and never settle. For something that doesn't give you that, do not stay at a place for 30 years that does not fill you up Mm. with the thing you're called to do. And we're all, I'm telling you, called to do something. Mm -hmm. I don't care if you're religious or not. Like there is a reason why we're on this earth and you have to figure out what that is for you and find that passion spot and stick to it and don't let anything get in your way.
0: Yeah. I used to tell my staff that if they were not happy or, and, you know, feeling engaged in their job more than 50% of the time that they needed to look for another job.
1: It's, It's so true.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting as my college educated grown son, he really was struggling to find the right kind of job. He has a theater degree, and he worked for Whole Foods during the pandemic. And, you know, it was interesting coaching him through some of that, like, you know, he was applying for a, like a supervisor job. And when he didn't get it, I said, is that really what you want to do? Do you really want to be a supervisor? I, I just didn't see that in him. I was able to use some of my, my own experience and say, you know, maybe you need to find a job at a place that has more opportunity for growth where you don't actually have to be a supervisor of people, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, Exactly.
0: Uh, that might be a good new book for you or something. What would you do? Yeah. <laughs> so young women entering the workplace or maybe both, you know, not just women.
1: I'm not sure. I, you know, it's one of those things. I think it's an evolving thing. I told yes. you like I'll probably doing a memoir at some point, probably not in, probably in the next five, six, seven years or something. But right now, you know, I've got other things I'm focusing on, but in the end, it's, it's just like, I, I feel so compelled to let people know people, whether you have a title or not, but especially if you have a title, if you are in the power position to uplift others, to make others feel important in your presence, use that power. That's the message I like to leave people with. Use the positive power, not the authority, not the title. Use all that that power entails. And it can be so positive for people. You can leave people with such positive impressions. I have very few people literally than less than one hand who left me with stories and ideas and feelings of what caring leadership looks like. They left a legacy with me that will come to my to my grave. And I think we just all need to decide whether we want to leave that kind of legacy or not.
0: I agree. Can you share some examples of perhaps your clients of companies that are embodying compassionate
1: leadership in your opinion? I have one company that I work with that's doing a lot that, it, that to me is an expression of compassionate, caring leadership. But it, it's so that's an aggregate, and of course, when I'm talking about you know carrying leadership, and a lot of times I'm talking about the, a person in their shoes and how they're showing up in that moment. But if we're looking at organizations, like what are some of the actions they're taking? Are they, for example, allowing their people to shine, like I talk about as, an, as a sign of it? Are they making their people feel important? Are they important meaning included and in the like they belong? So do they have programs? Do they have just all everything they do? Is it does it create uh, feelings of being included and in, like the people that are there belong? in the organization, in that role, on that team. And when they're doing that as a whole, we can look at them at being caring organizations. But but I would say now I like to take them one by one because every organization is made up of individual people, individual team players aggregated to make a whole. And we have to make sure that we're kind of grabbing each one, uh, hopefully the ones that have the most impact, uh, to see if we can, in fact, like change their mindset and, and change their behaviors.
0: Yeah, I have a no asshole rule that I institute <laughs> Yep. You know, as I was setting up my firm, I thought, okay, this is something that I absolutely believe in because I've worked in big companies where certain people are allowed to get away with bad behavior and it, it affects the whole work, the workplace culture. So let's talk a little bit about women that are leaving the workplace in droves right now because of the pandemic. Do you have any creative ideas for what companies could do to get women back into
1: the workplace? Well, I mean, I think you're going to have to be flexible. I mean, there's just no way around that. You're going to have to talk to them. I mean, goodness, is that a, that's a novel concept, isn't it? Yeah, we're just going to make assumptions about them, but we're never going to talk to them. This is the listening side of things. This is where we go to them. We say, we want you back. We want you here. We don't want you to leave. What is required? We may not be able to meet you fully in your shoes with full-time remote, but maybe we can do this, that, this, that, but we need to go talk to them. We need to ask them. That's the only way to get to the truth. We make way too many assumptions in corporate America. We have got to get to the truth. And the only way to do that is to go straight to the source.
0: Yep. Can you tell us about how you are involved in your community?
1: You know, right now, there's only really a couple things I do in the community outside of, I just said like, so I have a podcast, I have four kids, I'm a full-time speaker and a consultant. So things get busy. We do a a food truck. I don't tend to get to it every month. It's about, you know, once a quarter. Um, We do something called Christ in the City, which is going to help you know, the homeless, feed the homeless, talk to the homeless so that they know that they are important. So I try to do those kinds of things. I try to help out. Um, I'm on the board of the American Cancer Society. So helping with any of the galas, fundraising for cancer research. I just am going on to the board of this uh, National Speakers Association. And I came off of a, of a mile high SHRM, which is I'm, I have to kind of continue to release because I do I do a little bit too much in order to keep my sanity, caring leadership starts first with us. And if I do not care for me, I cannot <laughs> care for others. Right. And so I'm releasing things I'm turning, I'm saying no more often. And, and I want and I'm being very thoughtful about where I volunteer my hours. And so the things that matter to the most, again, like the cancer research and the other things related to like my industry, I want to volunteer there. And then anything with my kids when possible, trying to volunteer at their school and stuff.
0: Yeah. That's a lot have four kids and then juggle all these other things. I mean, yeah. three is a lot for me. Mine are kind of fairly spread out as well. So that there's an advantage there, but.
1: Yes. Mine yeah. are all kind of, it's like 11 to 18. So they're yeah. kind of, you know, they're all kind of in that age bracket. And so I have, you know, three teenagers and one tween now, one going off to college, two years in another two, another, so I'll have two in college, two in the high school, you know, all wow. at the same time. It's just kind of.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah. But anyway, you know, hey, yeah. I'm out here in the world.
0: <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. So you have been talking to leaders with heart on your podcast for quite a few years now, right? I was trying to go back to when you started and I couldn't even find it. But what are some of the recurring themes that have that come up on your podcast and your conversations?
1: Oh, it's interesting because that that's the foundation of this newest book. I boiled up mostly the nine behaviors all came from my conversations with about 150 liters. Oh. So that's kind of funny that, um, that you asked that because I started the podcast and then I got to like episode 25 and I was like, you know, a lot of people don't listen to podcasts and this is so <laughs> darn good that I have got to put this in a book. Like I, ha- oh. you know, what other ways can I do it? So I'm, I am socializing this message on the news. I'm socializing it in print. I'm doing it on videos for YouTube. I'm doing it in the book. I'm doing it in a podcast. I mean, I'm doing it anywhere I can where people are hearing this loud and clearly. You have the power to show more care this <laughs> year. So uh, yeah, so I would say I, I've done a lot in those themes. Some of the themes are again the things things that you do are like making people feel important, creating safe spaces, leading the whole person, making sure that you don't just you're not just taking into consideration what's happening to them at work, but what's happening outside of work, and leaning into that. You know, since this pandemic, we have learned so much more. We have seen so much more through the Zoom lens, through the to the teams lens. We were able to see dogs and elderly parents and, and our college kids at home and all kinds of things, right? And what I'm, I'm afraid will happen, which will likely happen to many people, is that the leaders who saw what they saw and the team members who saw what they saw will for, will forget it. I
0: know. They'll purposely
1: forget it. Yeah. And, and the priority of people and human relationships may go bye-bye. And my yeah. goal is for that not to happen. So it's always like trying to talk to, to leaders, organizational leaders about how do we maintain that closeness? How do we maintain that whole person leadership? once you return to office or go to a hybrid model. And that's really the thing that we need to be focusing on. How do we maintain it?
0: Right. I think that companies are or individuals are already seeing a little bit of that fray. Some companies are being really good about saying you can continue to work remotely, but others are insisting that people come back. There's going to be yeah, tension there.
1: Ex- yeah, exactly. I think we'll just have to you know, see where all that boils up. And I gotta tell you, there's going to be a lot of people leaving their jobs. So yes. organizations better brace themselves. That's for I sure. I think
0: so too. If you're not going to be flexible, you're going to lose people. That's for sure. Yeah, exactly. And so my final question is, which you've pretty much already answered, but in case you want to add anything, which is what advice do you have for people who want to create
1: companies that care? You got to ask yourself why you'd want to care. Why does your organization specifically want to show up with more care? Because you have to know the why before you embark on any culture change, any strategic change in your organization. You have to know the why. You have to know why you lead. You have to know why you want to change. And once you feel, figure out why, and hopefully it's not just, again, a check the box type situation, then you can go about, I would say the very first thing you do, the very first thing, if you haven't already done it, is either review your recent uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, or employee engagement survey comments, every single one of them. And if you haven't done that, or if you haven't even done a survey, administer a survey and read through all your comments. And of course, we help with that. So if you don't, we have an analysts that can do that for you. But if you don't want to do that, you can do your own. Listen to your people. Your people who are the ones in the front line, who are in the business every day, will tell you almost everything you need to know. So I would say that's the first way to care is to listen. And, and then there's a whole process of listening. So it's not just listen, and then leave it there. It's listen and follow through and make sure that you communicate to them about following through and what you're going to do and involve them in that process of follow through. And oh my gosh, it's so rich. Even as I describe it, I can visualize it. And I visualize it for every client I talk to. (laughs) And I always tell them, trust the process, trust the process, I promise you. Once you know your why and you listen deeply to those who drive your business forward, you're going to have almost 90% of it done. Now it's just time to get to action and, and we can get that done.
0: Yeah. In your experience, do you ever have people in your client companies who actually don't want some of this that are pushing back on companies mm-hmm. being too caring?
1: I don't think anybody would say to you, Oh, they I don't want to say care it. That they much. wouldn't
0: come right out and say that. No, they wouldn't
1: say I don't care that much. But they would say, like, like for example, if I'm like, well, here, here's like the other day I was like talking to someone and I said, okay. Here are the things that, you know, we're going to need to do. What I'm asking you is, are you prepared to change the real key things in order to get there? And, and their heads are like, mm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not, yeah I'm not and so because of that, I have to continue for them. I have to push. I have to push with them. I have to help them peel back the onion to decide what they're prepared to do. Because once we know we're prepared to do and what we are prepared to do, we can, we can make sure we're not overpromising the people who are looking to us to make changes, you know?
0: Right. Oh my gosh. So do you have anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we close Heather?
1: I would just say that caring leadership is really about showing concern and kindness for those that we lead or for those who look to us for guidance. This is whether you have a manager title or not, each of us has a choice on how we show up and we have a choice on how we treat people and how we leave them feeling. And I would just say, I would invite you to consider the power you hold and to go use that power in a positive way.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. It's been great spending time with you.
1: I Thank love you so it. Thank you so much there. for having me.
0: I love the way Heather turned the adversity and exclusion from her own childhood into creating a life and career that cares for others and teaches people how to create caring environments. Next week on the Fighting Fertile Ground podcast, I'm excited to share with you my interview with Nora Elmagbari, a phenomenal educator, scientist, nonprofit leader, and speaker. Nora is a Libyan immigrant and a Muslim woman who wears the hijab, and she will shatter any prejudice you have about devout Muslim women. I got to ask her about wearing the hijab and feminism, one of my favorite questions I've got to ask in my podcasts. Thanks for listening to Companies That Care. If you liked today's episode, check out our other episodes and subscribe. And don't forget to contact me if you'd like a 30-minute communications consultation. Our music is by jazz pianist Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications.